Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Was on the front page of was on the front page of the uh, Washington Post this morning, which was the fact that uh, we've talked about xenotransplantation for a while, which is transplantation between members of other species and uh, us. And uh, we'd mentioned the fact that they had done a transplant, kidney transplant between a uh, pig and a human. Uh, and that uh, organ has survived in a uh, brain dead person for about a month now. And so that was on the front page of the Washington Post. And that's an article we also have included. But I thought it was spectacular that uh, Xenotransplantation is uh, uh, right, right around the corner, as well as the uh, rest of the regenerative medicine efforts, stem cell, et cetera, which will may, maybe uh, obviate the shortcoming that we have uh, because we have a, a gap between the donors and recipients, which is about 60,000 and about 17 people die every day because of the shortage of donors. And so, uh, the xenotransplantation may well be the answer to that, with the pig being the model that is commonly used. Okay, just so uh, John, you can start the uh, the uh, articles now. <laughs> That's it's interesting how uh, we talk about the. Uh, obstacles that uh, we have in being black. And many times uh, when they put obstacles in front of us, this uh, accelerates our, our willingness to overcome the obstacles. And so here's a girl of color told she couldn't do well, but of course we've all been through that, I'm sure, but she's uh, starting uh, uh, college at the age of 14. Uh, you folks have uh, children and grandchildren that have had uh, head starts. What do you think about that process of uh, having a child of uh, 14 starting college? No, I'm not concerned about the fact that she will do the work because I'm sure she will. But uh, what, what is, what's the impact of, uh, you guys are teachers, a lot of you, What's the impact of having somebody that young uh, being in college? And at 12 being in high school. <laughs> what are your thoughts as teachers? What, how, did you, how do you react to those uh, children, child geniuses, so to speak? If, if I were ever put in that situation, um, it, would, it would be an inspiration for, for me you know, to see a, a young person that young succeed like that. And it is a challenge though, because, you know, kids are jealous of each other. <clears throat> and they try to, sometimes they, they try to hold each other back rather than support each other. So I would be, I'd be very protective of that very young person uh, coming in and supportive. For me, it would probably be 
overboard. <laughs> Probably go way out of my way for somebody like that who is that interested in science. So there it is. Any other thoughts? How about the uh, social ramifications of, uh, I, I remember growing up with a guy who was my, my pianist and he was precocious like, like this. And uh, it was kind of devastating on his social life. Uh, uh, he always was a misfit. And uh, anyway, additional thoughts about that, you educators. I think about balance, you know, with her peers, still letting her, you know, go, you know, be a child as she, uh, progresses in her in her studies but i think that there should be a a, a balance how do you create that balance yeah you got somebody who's 14 who's with college students how do you think you create that balance that's not that's easy to say it's hard to do personally i would just she needs to stay at home while she goes to school mm -hmm. and just go to classes and socialize with it but going off to school living in the dorms no I personally wouldn't say no I would just say no because of high even high school um getting thrown into that just going to classes and coming home and then participate socialize with their own peers um as far as that time um but just going to school and coming home, that's it. Until she's mature enough. Right. They're never mature enough, but uh, but this, I think this article is just stating the discrimination that she had to mm -hmm. go across so much. Yeah, I know, we, we all have that. Uh, it doesn't talk about the, the, the socialization that, uh, uh, the, the balance of the socialization that is mm -hmm. essential. I think you're hitting on it, but uh, uh, that, that's tough to do. How, how do you get a 14 year old to understand that uh, uh, you want her to go to class, but you want her to come home and not socialize with uh, what they would call her peers, but who are much older than her? Well, they have so much. Um, and I think Janet's experienced it with her grandson and my granddaughter went to the same high school where the first couple of years of high school, but of course they were with their right age. They right. kept them on PG County College and uh, kept them in closed classrooms. And then they didn't start socializing until with the rest of the college students until their junior and senior year. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing. Take them to school, let them go to classes and bring them back home. As far as the socialization, our society has so much now outside, whether it's sports or whatever you want for your child, even private lessons, that kids, even homeschool kids can socialize with their own peers, with their own age group. So that's not the problem so much. You know, even though she says she loves jazz and pop, they have so many extra outside of school area that kids can participate. <laughs> Uh, well, I've got a pers I've got a perspective. Um, when I uh, from fifth grade through um, through high school, well, fifth grade up to high school, uh, I was in what they call uh, accelerated classes for gifted students. 
uh, students that tested uh, 130 or above on the IQ tests, and I was 155. And uh, so kids that are gifted, they have their own pace, and their own uh, following their own pace is more important than socialization. Um, probably everybody in my class should have graduated college by the time they were 12, 13, or 14. That would have been the, the right pace for us. Uh, but since we didn't, we got the socialization, but just about everybody in my class underperformed according to their uh, real expectations. Um, so, you know, you, you got that to look at. If, if I was in college at 13 or 14, I wouldn't have got caught up in the social scene because the older kids didn't want to, wouldn't want to have anything to do with me because I was too young. I would be young enough where I could really focus on uh, accomplishing everything to my potential. Uh, yeah, you, you'd have a problem when you got a 14-year-old that's graduated college and they're too young to start the, the work world, but that's a minor problem compared to uh, maximizing their potential. And any other thoughts on the subject? It's good to hear for the balance. It is balanced, but I feel too that 14 going to college, 12 going to college, um, it puts pressure on the student. Obviously you're there because you're bright, you're gifted, but I would think it's a problem with fitting in. Going to school is one thing, but there's so many things going on in college that's after school hours, after the normal curriculum. And um, how do you fit in? Where is that balance? And Carol, you're right. With our kids going to PG, they're kids. And uh, the first two years of that high school, they were with the kids. And then when they became juniors, they're with these adults. And my uh, grandson went there and he had a little problem uh, adjusting, but he said he learned from the older people, not only school work, but other things. They became friends, they became friends. But um, to live in an environment with senior, senior as opposed to um, uh, junior high school and uh, much older students to live in that type of environment, I think it puts added pressure on them. Obviously she did well, but would the average student do as well? My thought on it is that as this particular person excels academically, I think it, my thought is that it corresponds to socialization. She would be very intelligent in socialization and uh, she would be equally gifted uh, academically as she would socially. Why would you say that? Based upon what do you say that? Because they have one doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the other. I'm thinking uh, my, my thought is I'm talking about general uh, intelligence levels. If you have a general intelligence level, that's very high, then I think, that's just my thought, is that it also corresponds to your intelligence as far as socialization is concerned. I don't agree. And uh, based upon my experience with uh, many of the gifted kids, uh, it doesn't, sometimes, it, it, for example, LaSalle LaFall was uh, my professor and mentor. He was one of the rare 
people I've met who had that balance where he was intellectually gifted, but he also was socially, socially balanced. Uh, but most of the other gifted kids that I met were, were, were socially unbalanced. Uh, and uh, they kind of were misfits. Uh, but uh, I think it, the, the, the ability to have the two together isn't always present. For example, with uh, Daryl, it may have been present, but uh, there are a lot of the so-called gifted kids who, who don't have that balance and they become misfits. Uh, so, it is, it, so I'm just saying that they aren't necessarily together, the social skills as well as the intellectual skills and gifts. And that's where the parenting has to play a major role in trying to do the things that Janice and Carol talked about. Uh, uh, Carol, it would be interesting to hear your perspective since uh, your, your little brother uh, uh, was going through that. How, how, did you, how did you see him from your eyes? Carol, you still there? Or maybe you'd rather not say, huh? No, it's uh, she had to step away. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it'd be interesting to hear somebody else speak who, who knew Daryl as he grew up and uh, to, to see how socially balanced he was as he was so intellectually gifted. From what I know about Daryl is that he's very, he has been very competitive all of his life. So, not only did he compete, you know, academically and musically, but sports, um, chess, you know, he, he was, uh, he adjusted in every category, in my opinion. Yeah, and that, that, that's, uh, that's unique and that's special. And people like that are actually very rare. I've encountered a number of them as I went through my career and I've found, some of them were misfits, some of them fit, fit in very well. So, and, and I don't know what makes the difference. Uh, why is one a misfit and the other uh, just, just well-balanced? Any thoughts or ideas on that? Yeah, John, the check's in the mail, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I would think that um, social intelligence and intellectual intelligence, I don't see any correlation. Um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I, I that's been my experience as well. Yeah, yeah. Doctor, I, I think, think his hand up. Yeah. I think the parental influence has a lot to do yes. with the adjustment yes. of a, yes. a younger child, because if uh, they are treated as uh, as uh, age appropriate as a child at home, that's one thing. But if the parents recognize the uh, high IQ, uh, the special gifted child, they must readjust to uh, present them with uh, a more, uh, an older child's view of life and treat them as such. It's, uh, but if you, if you confine them to age appropriate uh, activity, then uh, they will be maladjusted when they get in the college at a very young age. There's uh, no doubt about that. Dr. Atto, you had a comment? Yes, uh, there's a similar uh, sit, um, situation 
in, uh, in 2013, where a girl from uh, New Jersey, although she's not black, but um, she is uh, of Asian descent, you know, she finished high school at the age of uh, nine and uh, <laughs> finished college at the age of, uh, I think, 12 and got her PhD at the age of, uh, I think, uh, 18 or 17, PhD. But uh, her, her area was on computer. She was a computer wizard from New Jersey. You know, I think once in a while we see, you know, these uh, talents, these, uh, uh, you know, children come up, you know, they are just uh, endowed, endowed with um, special skills. And, uh, and then their parents, you know, foster because when they uh, profiled her upbringing, her parents, has, uh, they, her parents have a lot to do with her, you know, excellence in, uh, from elementary school, how she, was how she skipped setting many grades, you know, because of her uh, uh, academic performances. So once in a while, we see some of these, uh, you know, excellent uh, performances from these kids. Yep. Joyce, you had a comment. Joyce, your hand is up. You're mute. Yes, my um, comment is that. Um... Everything that everyone is saying is absolutely targeted and true, but parents and the student or the young person must have an open communication. And parents should be more, put more emphasis on that with the child to make sure that they stay open and communicate um, things that they are experiencing and not experiencing. Because we all know that young people, young adults, they can be kind of mean. And uh, with that, um, and we hear a lot of um, children now being placed in stressful situations and um, they get captured and they don't know how to recover for them. But I think if the parent and the, and the um, student or the child have a very open communication and talk to each other, I um, think that that would be really helpful. Elizabeth, you had a comment? Yes, good morning, everyone. I agree with what has been said. And I was thinking about the fact that um, I was, uh, I am uh, a child of eight. And I was the middle child. So my sister, um, was very, very smart. And my mother always encouraged the rest of us that we were smart too. But in that, um, I ended up in some of her classes. In college, I ended up in um, classes above those in the, on the dean list. Uh, and I treated it as, um, but one thing my mother did and my father did do, they kept me, um, not only did I excel academic, but I excel in my community connection as well as my family connection. Because uh, even though I was tagging behind my older sister to learn what she'd learned, my mother also had me to support my other siblings 
because she was the oldest and I was second, so it was five, five under me. Uh, well, six, but five under me. And so I had to help them. And so, but I think the most important things, whether you're gifted, whether you're average, or no matter what, what status you're in, uh, that parental influence, connection, and keeping you grounded is so vital, so important. Because with me, I finished college in three years. I would have finished faster if there was more months in the summer. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, that connection to social and age is so important. I think being gifted is, is a gift uh, that we treasure. But I think, uh, I agree with everyone, that parental influence and connection and communication and that open communication, that dialogue starts day one or uh, before day one. And so extending that, whether your child is gifted or not, is so imperative, so urgent, so important, because that's what we do in the classroom. When the child first walked in, we make a relationship connection and we make that relationship connection that extends to that family. So keeping that child holistic and well-rounded is so urgent and important. Um, I had this one more thing to say, um, and I don't think, even though the parents are participating, there's so much that children, no matter if they were past generation or this generation, and I wanna use my brother as an example again. When he was in fourth and fifth grade, they put those talented and gifted kids in a high school setting and that's where their classes were they the parents couldn't have been around while the other kids were intimidating these kids and majority nine-eighths of them <laughs> such thing were white he was the only black the black kids it was a black high school they intimidated and wanted to beat up these kids in this talented and gifted. So my brother thought of a unique scheme which he got in trouble from, but it was to protect those other boys and girls in their classes from getting beat up. So he started a insurance agent where they would pay him. And his thing was if they kept together, they wouldn't get beat up, but he gave them insurance papers. So they would have to sign and pledge that he would keep them from being beat up. Now, if the parents were involved, the parents couldn't go with them to school, monitor them, and et cetera. I had a little girl when I was teaching third grade at Amadon. The kids in the neighborhood, because she of the color she was, and her father was um, middle class, and they weren't. I had to protect her by not letting her go outside and play because the moment I would turn my back, someone would taunt her, hit her, or even want to fight her. Now, I'm a teacher protecting her, and I advise her parents, take her out of this school because she needed to have recess and et cetera. There's so much she could tell her parents that these kids are beating her up, and the only thing you can do to protect your child is to take them out of that environment where they might excel, go super glad. But she did fine. This child right here, um, socialization, nobody really out of, we don't know if she reported or not. 
but kids will intimidate, they will tease, they will pick at the kids. And um, if it happened to us in our generation, like my brother, my mother said it happened to her too when she was skipped and everything. Now in education, they no longer skip children. They hardly keep them back. They push them forward because all children can exceed and they're really handicapping children. But all of this is to say, um, I don't know what you would do, but no matter how much the parents are involved, that socialization of going to class, college is a little bit different. Just go to class and get out and go home. You don't have to socialize with the people. But high school, going to class, passing from classroom to classroom, They'll say, oh, isn't that cute, sweet? And some high schools, they're really nice and they won't bother the kids. Other high schools, no matter what you do, no matter how much you tell kids not to bully and all that kind of stuff, it's going to happen. Thank you. Well, uh, okay, thanks, Carol. Um, my, uh, my principal called it an extortion racket. He didn't call it insurance. But when you're young <laughs> going to school, when you're young going to school with older, older kids, you got to learn, you got to know how to fight. And uh, being being tall, being tall helps. Uh, you know, my father taught me how to fight. Uh, my mother fought when she was a kid, so she had that attitude. So I got that attitude. I'd I'd recommend. You know, it's uh this is America. It's tough for kids growing up. Uh, get your get your kids in some martial arts classes and both boys and girls, so they know how to fight. It's important. Okay, we've, we've, we've talked enough about it. Let's move to the next subject. Thank you for those wonderful comments. Dr. Calder, I just had one, one thing to say real, really quickly though. Um, the thing I have highlighted, you know, some, sometimes what the teacher might say to the, to the kid can have lasting impact. The, the principal, her fifth grade principal told her that black girls and the principal was black, you know, so we have to be really careful what we say to these kids. That's really all I wanted to say. Thanks. Okay, let's go to the next one. <laughs> one, uh, one quick rejoinder before you go on. Uh, you mentioned uh, learning how to fight. Well, you know, today the kids carry guns and knives, so <laughs> not to be considered. <laughs> <laughs> that's sad, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's because if you fight, you get put out. The person that, if you get attacked, you get put out. The person that attacked, you get put out. And sometimes expelled from the school period. They don't care who starts it. Kids are no longer allowed to fight. So the only thing they're going to do is to end it is either shoot you or knife you. And they're going to get expelled anyway. So they get it over with. If they just let kids fight like they used to, it'd be much better. But they, we can't, you can't even touch, you can't even touch a teacher. Teacher can't touch you. Nobody can touch. There's no human touch. So, you know, getting along. Okay, never mind. Okay, go on. Okay, uh, thank you very much for all of the points of view. They're all good. Uh, this is an article that the uh, CEO of the hospital uh, sent on, and it's a story about the, uh, how uh, this riverboat was blocked by uh, 
they had a private boat that had a space and somebody took the space and, uh, and the guy in his efforts to get his space was being brutally beaten, beaten up, but uh, people intervened. And uh, because they intervened, uh, the attackers were, were uh, uh, prevented from killing the, the captain. <clears throat> and uh, I guess the moral of the story is that uh, uh, we have to, when we see, you know, it's interesting because many of the events that happen that are horrific, people take pictures, but they don't do anything to help. And uh, uh, the moral of the story is that we've got to be willing to help out. Uh, and if we're not gonna help out, uh, maybe nobody else will. In this situation, uh, they actually helped out. And the moral of the story is that uh, uh, many times uh, we are so afraid of <clears throat> helping out that all we do is take videos. And uh, the motivation <clears throat> of this article is that help can be on the way, but you have to be that help. Of course, nowadays, most people are afraid to help out because they might be killed as well. Uh, but uh, uh, if you're not gonna be the helper, who will be? Any thoughts on that as you, you many of us have faced that situation. I remember I was on the subway and uh, uh, these youngsters were attacking this uh, uh, Asian couple. And uh, I intervened, of course, in, in, in many ways, I intervened because I thought that the Metro uh, communication system was working and that you could actually call the police. And so I pressed the button thinking that it would get the police. Police never came. But but the kids, uh, because I intervened, they, they, uh, let, they stopped uh, fighting this guy. So uh, Mark, you had some comments. Yeah, uh, very quickly, uh, perhaps I can argue that perhaps in certain situations, recording the incident and properly re reporting it to the authorities can be of help. Um, you know, I, I, I can see how just recording it, you know, just for your own consumption, that's that's pretty selfish. But, you know, perhaps if someone records it and, you know, reports it to the proper authorities, you know, cases can be made in, in the proper way. So, you know, so if you're not in a position to help physically, you know, if there's no call buttons or anything like near, that nearby, you know, perhaps recording could be of help. Just a thought. Any other thoughts? Thomas? Yeah, Black Party, Black Panther Party was uh, designed to be an intervention group against uh, domestic terrorists, such as uh, right-wing Klan organizations and police brutality. Uh, it's too bad we still don't have that. But, you know, Black Panthers were eliminated when the government firebombed them and killed them in Philadelphia. Any other comments? Okay. Now, this uh, is uh, the article that we talked about uh, on the start of the program that uh, uh, as you know, we talked about this last year that uh, they'd done this genetically altered kidney into a brain dead man, but they, uh, we never knew what happened after that. But uh, uh, what they're telling us is that 30, a month later, uh, the uh, kidney continued to function well. 
and this would be the first time that uh, uh, they've had this kind of long-term, it's, it's short-term, but relatively long-term function without uh, having uh, uh, immunosuppression. And uh, this is because the uh, pig kidney was genetically altered so that the uh, antigen that was causing uh, the uh, hyperacute rejection was uh, eliminated. And uh, of course, since uh, uh, we have such a gap, this kind of uh, success may well lead to what we call xenotransplantation uh, becoming something to help us since we have so many, we have such a disparity between those people donating uh, close to uh, 40,000 transplants a year while we have 100,000 people who are on the waiting list. So uh, this augurs well for our future in which uh, transplanted pig kidneys, which are already genetically altered, can be used. Uh, Jamie Locke is doing this in the University of Alabama, and uh, uh, but uh, uh, Bob Montgomery is the one who took it, uh, and not only to uh, to a day or to five days, but actually to thirty days. Any comments on xenotransplantation and uh, uh, whether or not you would be willing, if you knew that you would die without a transplant, uh, would accept a, a kidney from a pig. Any comments? Uh, yeah, the um, uh, John Buchanan, it'd be cool if we could do a quick poll on you. I think since, since you're the administrator, we could do a quick poll on uh, who would take a, a xenotransplant and who wouldn't. Well, I, I I would. Any anybody else? Speak up. I wouldn't. This is Sylvia. I don't know. It's just a phobia. I would. I'd take it. Anybody else to speak up? I I wouldn't. No, <clears throat> I wouldn't. Okay, so. Anybody else? So the majority would, but there are some who would not. So, of course, it's easy for us to say because, uh, and he's, he's giving us an opportunity to answer yes or no, uh, but it actually didn't give you a chance to vote. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's easy for us to say when you're not dying to say whether or not you would accept the organ or not. Uh, but when you're at the point of death, that's the time that the question becomes uh, easier or uh, more difficult to answer. Because then uh, the question is, uh, do you, you know that you're actually gonna die if you don't have the transplant. And it's that time when some people would change their mind. But the majority of people, uh, it seemed like, uh, uh, said yes. But there were a number of dissenters, and that's that's probably the way it was. You know, when uh, um, we had, we had this problem, this question on TV uh, a decade or two ago, uh, about ninety percent of the people who were faced with this 
uh, said yes, but there's at least 10% who would say no. So, but it's an issue that uh, we're going to come to grips with uh, uh, over the next five to 10 years. Dr. Atto. Yeah, this, uh, this very news was on, the, on, on uh, ABC yesterday. This very, very article you are talking about. And um, this, uh, according to what you are saying, the genetically modified, uh, uh, the, or the, the gene for rejection that rejects the uh, transplants. But uh, my question is, uh, how long, this is uh, somebody who is brain dead, I guess, how long will, it, will this person survive? How long will he live? Not long, uh, we because, because when the brain ceases to function, uh, within a period of time, the organs, uh, the heart stops beating and, uh, the, and all that. So it's hard to tell uh, 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 because what they are having to do is to uh, use extraordinary efforts to keep the uh, organs functioning while the uh, patient is brain dead. But, uh, and, and the reason that in the past, for example, in the Alabama study, uh, they stopped was because uh, in deference to the uh, person who was brain dead. And uh, so that they stopped within days because of, uh, the, the donor family uh, uh, was not desirous of them going longer. Uh, so it's not that they couldn't go longer, but that they didn't because of, a deference to the donor family. But it's unreasonable for them to go much longer than 30 days because it's just, uh, uh, it's something that uh, goes against the grain. At the calendar, um, I know when James received his kidney, one of the things that he talked about was his desire for things that he did not desire prior to receiving the kidney. Um, with the pig, and I see right here that they have a thousand proteins that human don't, humans don't have, but has research been done to find out how the chemical makeup from the, kid, from the pig would somehow change the chemical makeup of the human? No, that has not been done because we haven't done xenotransplants. So that would take, we'd have to do it to find out. Yeah. But no, that the answer to that question, that has not been done. Yeah, but and that's so why far, some people like, said no, probably. Go ahead, Darrell. Yeah, with organ transplants, if I remember correctly, uh, there's been no change to DNA of the recipients, although there has been some DNA change with bone marrow trans, uh, transplants, but um, you know this is an organ transplant, and so if things uh, stay the same, there shouldn't be any DNA changes. The proof of the pudding will be the eating, and so uh, the expectation is that there wouldn't be a change, but we wouldn't really know until it's actually done and. And it's been it's been allowed to uh, the organ allowed to exist for years, and that has not been the case. The longest for xenotransplant surviving has probably been around sixty days, 
uh, because the uh, rejection was the biggest obstacle which the genetic uh, modification of the pig has overcome. But the expectation is, as Dal has said, is that uh, we wouldn't have it, but uh, whether that's borne out in the long run, time will tell. It's interesting that uh, we still have the issue of uh, insulin being expensive and uh, uh, it's Amazon Pharmacy has uh, uh, tried to deal with this by uh, allowing uh, uh, lowering the price and also uh, Medicare has also reduced it so that uh, uh, that issue uh, is becoming less and less of a problem. It was a dramatic problem uh, a year ago because uh, people were, were being uh, forced to take half of the amount of medicine they, that they wanted to take because they couldn't afford it. So uh, the search for discounted insulin was, was very great. Now with Medicare making the changes, it's not as acute as it once was. Can we come back and vote? Okay, any, any diabetics who've experienced this? Or any comments? Okay, so this is a problem that has become acute, but it is being addressed by a number of uh, sources. So the, uh, this particularly affects the type one diabetics because they require insulin to survive. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, this is an article that uh, flies in the face of many other articles that talk about one drink a day is good for a woman and uh, maybe three drinks a day is good for men. Uh, but this says even one drink a day is associated with increase in blood pressure. Uh, and uh, this is based upon uh, uh, the study that they uh, uh, published in hypertension. Uh, the question is that uh, still remains to be seen is, uh, the uh, type of, uh, of, of patient they're talking about. For example, this data talks about Korean, US, and Jap Japanese people, and the number is only 19,000. And uh, it doesn't talk about how many people of color are involved in this. And I think that that becomes an issue as well. But uh, it's interesting, though, that it does bring up an issue, an issue that just bothers me is the fact that one drink a day for an alcoholic uh, results in them uh, not being able to stop drinking. So that uh, uh, while it may be good for the stomach's sake, if you're an alcoholic, not good at all. And so for many, it's better not to drink at all. But anyway, uh, that's, that's, that, that, this article then points out why that uh, even one drink a day is, uh, associated with increasing blood pressure. In the past, we've talked about alcohol, but not really 
paid attention to the impact upon blood pressure. This is an article that talks about the fact that while it may be bad for the liver, uh, it's also uh, elevates the blood pressure. Any comments or thoughts about this interesting new perspective? Dr. Kellen, it would be interesting to know if the um, test group had normal uh, blood pressure levels as opposed to a person that is taking blood pressure medicine to keep their blood pressure down. Yeah, it doesn't say, but it, it, you know, the impression is that these people uh, had normal blood pressures, but it doesn't go into detail. Now, this is a, a very <laughs> remarkable article uh, in that it talks about Dr. Gupta and his experiences, how he used to be opposed to cannabis. Uh, and one of the things that uh, he happened to notice is that in seniors who took uh, cannabis for pain and other things that uh, it worked. And uh, as, as we had mentioned, it has been used for glaucoma and it has been used for pain uh, relief. And he is now convinced that uh, cannabis uh, is helpful, as we all know, for some for some things. It has its side effects, but uh, it is uh, helpful for pain without question. And for some, it's helpful for insomnia. Uh, but uh, uh, it is clear that uh, cannabis does have a medical role in uh, and handling people who have uh, pain, and um, especially in seniors uh, who have this, but actually it's true in, in adults as well. Any comments on, on the, the, the value? It does have its side effects, but it has its merits as well. And every drug that I know has side effects as well, so. Yeah, for, for me, Dr. Callender, uh just smoking anything, if it's if the the, the method of uh, application is smoking, is an issue because of the extra toxins that get carried into the lungs. But you know, well, smoking uh, is not the only way it's administered. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're you're right about about the smoking, but uh, cannabis is administered by other routes as well. I would just suspect that the edibles are probably loaded with sugar. I don't know. It does, this article doesn't address that aspect of it. You probably can get to sleep faster if you smoke it, though. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't. The article doesn't talk about the roots of administration of cannabis. Uh, some people actually also recognize that cannabis is an anti-rejection medicine that has been used to decrease the incidence of rejection and transplantation as well. So, but they don't talk about the root of administration because it can be administered uh, subcutaneously, PO, and uh, intravenously. 
I just did a search on cannabis edibles, and it says, quite frankly, they're full of calories and sugar that are bad for you. <laughs> it's an interesting story about overdoing it and with the edibles that you talked about. You go back to that picture of the guy on the ladder um, who's harvesting cannabis, you know, that, that, that would be really bad if he fell off the ladder. Any other comments about uh, cannabis and its medicinal value? Yeah, you said uh, cannabis may be more beneficial to seniors and uh, adults than maybe younger adults. Uh, in which way? I mean, as a pain reliever? Yes, pain reliever and also insomnia as well. Yeah. And, and as we know, uh, for glaucoma, but uh, yes. Uh, so it's been used in young and old. It just seems to have uh, relatively uh, more effect on the older, but uh, the young people are using it for forever anyway. So, so as one is aging, and then is experiencing a. Uh, back pain, knee pain, uh, elbow pain. Do you, do you recommend the person to be taking a marijuana? No, I don't, but uh, uh, the evidence is suggested that it is, it can relieve pain. And, okay. and that, that's a, an, a, an additional medication that is available for those who have pain that doesn't respond to anything else. Okay. Uh, it's a, as we all know that CPAP is a treatment that is used to uh, treat obstructive uh, sleep apnea, which uh, uh, where people who have difficulty breathing because they don't uh, have adequate oxygen level uh, use CPAP, which allows uh, uh, the oxygen level to stay up. And this then uh, eliminates the problems that they have with hypertension and other uh, consequences of low oxygen levels. Uh, and uh, uh, the CPAP then, of course, is uh, uh, one of the treatments of choice uh, for obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, and uh, the fact that the oxygen level stays at a, an appropriate level throughout the night makes a tremendous difference in terms of complications that occur uh, because of hypoxia or the lack of oxygen. Uh, and uh, snoring is one of the most common manifestations of uh, sleep apnea. And uh, uh, as a consequence of the fact that you don't get enough oxygen, you don't get enough sleep, you're tired all the time, 
and blood pressure's up and many other things uh, go along with that. Uh, many people go undiagnosed, one, because they don't have a partner who sleeps with them. So they may not know that they're snoring. And uh, others uh, uh, just uh, don't realize that uh, it causes many complications that result in the early uh, death. Uh, as you know, uh, morbid obesity is a problem that can cause obstructive sleep apnea, uh, tonsil, having tonsils, uh, tonsillitis and those kind of things. Uh, also, uh, uh, adenoids or other things that can obstruct your ability to oxygenate. Uh, and uh, the thing about the CPAP is that you have to sleep with it at night. So your social interactions with people at night become, uh, and, uh, okay, become problematic. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, a lot of people are reluctant to use it once they start using it. The benefits are so obvious that most people are willing to take CPAP because it uh, lengthens their lives. Uh, if you think you have sleep apnea, what you can do is go to the hospital and get a sleep test. And during the, while you're sleeping, they do tests and find out about your ability to oxygenate. And uh, so uh, without having a sleep test, it's hard to, to make a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. My name is Mark Tatum, I'm 46 years old, and I use a CPAP machine. <laughs> and what do you think about it, using it at night? Um, just like how you said, it is uncomfortable. It, it's something that I'm still trying to get used to. Um, but I do notice a difference um, when I use it. There are some nights where I, you know, I've skipped it or tried to skip it, and it has made a difference. And before before CPAP machine, I was always tired. I was constantly fatigued. I would get like six to seven to eight hours of sleep at night, but was wondering why I was still like fatigue and tired all the time. Uh, but this uh, CVAP machine, it, it does make a difference. I'm I'm only like uh, three or four months in using it, but I could tell it's making a difference. I'm, I'm John Cannon. I'm 73 and I use the CPAP. I've been using it for about uh, six years now. And I even use it when I take a nap. Uh, it, it has stopped my snoring, even though I have mild, uh, uh, disruptive uh, sleep apnea. Uh, my son Kareem has um, uh, very heavy. I, I forget the uh, the the terminology for it, but uh, he has like seventy percent. Mine is like seventeen percent uh, obstructive. He has severe obstructive sleep apnea, and my, my spouse also has severe obstructive sleep apnea. Can you scroll back to the top of the article? I missed that. Thank you. 
John, how long did it take you to get used to CPAP? Um, you know, that's that that's a good question. I I um I wanted to stop snoring, so I, I kind of did it right away. And I'm I'm uncomfortable if I don't have it <laughs> now. I, I recommend it. It's, it's something to get used to. It's uh you know, and I've recommended it to some friends of mine. They said, no, I'm not going to do it. Got the tube hanging all over you. I don't even notice the, uh, the the tube that goes through the machine. Don't even notice it. Yeah, I went to an ENT, and he told me I didn't have sleep apnea, but he said I would sleep better if I used nasal strips, and that's true. So I use a nasal strip, and I do sleep a little better. Mark, how long did it take you to get used to this? CPAP. Yeah, I'm still not all the way used to it. Um, <laughs> I, it I I fall asleep anyway because uh, I'm, I'm you know just legitimately tired, so I I just deal with it. Uh, sometimes, some nights I've, I've woken up and felt uncomfortable and taking it off to to my detriment. Uh, so yeah, I, so truth be told, yeah, I'm still not all the way used to it. John, did you, uh, Buchanan, did you take a while for you to get used to it? Or are you, as soon as you started using it, the benefit was so obvious, you just uh, start, kept doing it? I, I think that's the case. Yeah, I, uh, I, I just started using it and kept using it, you know. And uh, when I went back for, for my checkup, the, you know, I took my, my machine and, and they record the uh, the quality of your sleep, the the seal on the mask, uh, how long you uh, sleep with it, and they said I had like ninety eight percent, you know, which is a plus uh, on usage. So they said they had never seen anybody who had that <laughs> that high a score. Uh, but also they um, they can record your sleep uh, over the internet as well. So. I know how somebody might feel about that, but <laughs> you 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 can track your sleep as well. Mark, did you have another comment or no? Okay. No, well, no, no, I was just I was just uh, congratulating John Buchanan because he he said he even takes it during a nap. I haven't that that's uh you're very good with that. I, I gotta get to that level. I gotta get to where you are <laughs> one day, sir. Okay. Call me anytime. <laughs> okay. All right, thank you very much for that response because uh, it's uh, good to hear. Now, this is not surprising, but uh, the fact that sleep and immunity are uh, linked together and that uh, if you have poor sleep, you have a diminished immune response and the need to have seven to nine hours of sleep a night uh, uh, does wonders for the immune system. And this is an article that points out that uh, that if you're able to sleep well, that uh, you're able to respond to uh, infections and other things uh, better. Uh, that sleep and uh, immune system work together to keep you alive. Uh, and this is, shows that uh, they weren't, to me, uh, 164 adults uh, uh, 
it's not a huge study, but uh, uh, but it does uh, identify that uh, the antibody response is, is greater when you sleep well, and it goes down when you sleep less. Understanding the uh, immune system, you recognize that having an intact immune system helps you with with cancer as well, because uh, many instances, uh, cancer is a result of the of an immune deficiency or the inability to to kill the cancer cells, and uh, so sleep, good sleep does help with that. Although we know that there are antibodies, uh, autoantibodies that knock out the, the cells that are responsible for killing cancer cells. And so uh, one of the treatments for cancer is to uh, use these antibodies to knock out the autoantibodies that are preventing our immune system from functioning appropriately. Okay, so what I don't understand is Donald Trump gets between four and five hours of sleep a night and eats McDonald's and Kentucky Fried. How does he do that? What do you mean, how does he do it? Many people Stay alive. Do how oh. is he still? He's, he's 77. <laughs> and, and... <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a question. Individuals it's... are different. Mm -hmm. It is I amazing. I said the proof is in the pudding. Is it evidence? Is it evidence based? I, I think that I think he's um he's nodding off. He's he's taking naps. He's taking micro naps throughout the day. You know he'll be at a press briefing and just kind of nod off. I mean that doesn't count towards cumulative sleep, but you know that I, I don't think I, I doubt that he's seriously staying up the entire day. I seriously do. But also you got to keep in mind that. His brain is not functioning very well. <laughs> yep, there are a number of, you know, one of the things that we've talked about uh, for quite a while is the fact that uh, sleep uh, allows your brain to detoxify. And so uh, when you don't sleep well, your brain is not as, as, as functional as it could be. Case in point. Yes, John. Trump is a case in point. <laughs> well, <laughs> no comment. Um, this is an article that is a, is complex, but uh, it uh, it takes both points of view. Uh, talking about maps that are short about an hour long uh, seem to be good for the brain. Naps that are longer than that seem not to be associated with uh, a great mental ability based upon the studies that they've done here. And so it, it seems that short naps, now the, the exception is when you have a sleep debt where you don't get enough nighttime sleep, you know, then, then you have uh, you have a different situation because what you're doing is trying to repay your your sleep debt. 
which is a little different from the naps that they're talking about. And so the naps that they talk about that are of merit are those that are uh, less than 60 minutes. Longer than that, they're not thought to be helpful. And it's also thought that dimensions associated with long naps on the domes. Uh, sometimes one thing causes the other, and Alzheimer may cause you to sleep more. And therefore, uh, that may uh, adversely influence the studies on uh, longer naps. Because as, as Alzheimer gets worse, you sleep more. But the short naps uh, do appear to uh, be very helpful. And uh, most of the information indicates that the short naps uh, allow the brain to uh, relax and uh, allow you to, to uh, increase your cognitive abilities. Whereas there's evidence that the longer naps do not do that. Any comment about those of you who nap? Okay, this article is, is an article that uh, I put in here because it, it points out that uh, just because we got we have uh, good medicine that's helpful doesn't mean that people will take advantage of it. Uh, and uh, this shows that uh, we've got a a new treatment for hepatitis C, but yet only a third of the people who have hepatitis C have taken advantage of it, which is kind of disgraceful. Uh, but uh, it's just like 17% uh, of Americans have taken advantage of uh, uh, the vaccine, uh, of the second uh, vaccine. Uh, uh, only 17% are taking advantage of it. So similarly, here you have a cure for hepatitis C, and only a third of the people who have hepatitis C have actually uh, taken the medicine to treat it. So it's uh, one thing to have the medicine, it's another thing to have people take advantage of it. And one of the biggest problems is that 40% of the people who have hepatitis C don't even know they have it. And unless you get tested for it, you wouldn't know you have it either. So, so getting people tested is one of the first uh, issues. Uh, now, people who work in the hospital, uh, they have to have testing. The people who don't work in the hospital uh, may not get their tests. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Collins. So you're, you're saying that if you have uh, Hep C, you don't have any symptoms? Well, hep C may start off without symptoms. And very often it's only 20 to 30 years later, you wind up with hepatitis and you may wind up with cancer of the liver. Uh, so yes, in, initially you may, it may be asymptomatic. Uh, Dr. Callender, if you remember, David had hepatitis C and I believe that's what led to the primary sclerosis cholangitis. And um, 
He had it for many, many years. He had hepatitis C as a very young child. And uh, he had uh, primary sclerosis and cholangitis more than half his life, I guess. But um, that's not what uh, ended his life. He had heart problems. But yes, he had for many years. And that's what caused him to have the transplants. He had two liver transplants because of it. Any other comments, uh, Ben? Uh, Reynolds, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I also read in there that a, a lot of the people who did receive treatment varied based on whether they had insurance or whether they did not have insurance. And the people with the lowest rates of treatment were those who were under a certain age, I want to say under 34, without private insurance. So that's an issue too, it looks like from the article. Well, the, the, uh, most of the uh, Medicare, if you have Medicare that would cover it, but you're right. Uh, now, uh, Gilead uh, has actually uh, uh, has a program for those people who don't have insurance uh, so that they can get the medication even if they're not insured, but that, that is a part of the problem. And, uh, but I think a lot of it relates to uh, knowing whether or not you have hepatitis C, because if you have hepatitis C, uh, there are ways, whether you have insurance or not, you can get, get the medication. Uh, uh, actually, Gilead has a, a program that allows you to uh, get the medication, whether you insure it or not. Uh, I have a, patient who uh, uh, actually has uh, uses and uh, I think if there are people who have hepatitis C infection and they uh, don't have any insurance at all, if you're a DC resident, uh, you can get a Medicaid uh, which would pay for it. So now if you're not a DC resident, I'm not sure, but I know a DC resident, you can get DC Medicaid which would pay for the uh, advertisements. But the, your point is well taken that the un, uninsured have a less uh, likelihood of being able to get the medication. Uh, so if they are DC residents though, they can get DC Medicaid, which would pay for it. It's good to have you again on the program. And you did oh, yeah. a great job on the uh, uh, webinar last week, you guys were sensational. No, I, I told Dr. Uh, Melanson that you, you guys helped us look like we had some sense. That's what that was, I think. <laughs> well, anyway, good to have you back again. It's good. Thank Congratulations you. on your success. And I have to be in clinic next Thursday, so you won't see me next Thursday. Anytime we see you, we're grateful okay. to see you. Okay, okay. You're always welcome. Thank always you, welcome. thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, here's, here's, a, here's an issue. COVID is coming back uh, and uh, people who wear masks and don't wear masks. You know, if you have COVID, uh, the best thing to do is stay home. So you don't have to tell anybody you stay home. Uh, so, uh, and that's the best advice, stay home until you're negative. And, and then you might, uh, come out again, but uh, uh, as far as telling people, 
you can tell them if you want to, but you should stay home until you're over it and you're COVID negative. Uh, we are seeing an increase in COVID cases and uh, there's still only 17% of uh, Americans have taken uh, the boosters, the second booster shot for COVID. And so uh, uh, that, that would help if you get that. And then of course, if you get a positive test, you need to uh, stay home. And then of course, if you don't improve within three to five days, you need to, especially if you're over 65, then you, you need to take the anti-COVID medications. Uh, we have two of them which are uh, effective. Uh, of course, if you have uh, uh, renal disease, then of course you can't take those medications. But uh, so therefore, having the having been vaccinated. Hey, that's the number one that I'm going to. Any comments or question about this? Because this is something that, as we approach September, that we have an article in here that talks about the fact that in September they will start giving you the annual COVID shot, which is very similar to the annual influenza shot. Uh, and so the question is, for those of you who have not gotten the sixth, sixth vaccination or the second uh, bivalent uh, uh, vac vaccine, uh, whether you get this shot now, because within six months of the previous vaccines, it is thought that the immunity begins to wane. Uh, and uh, unlike the, uh, the vaccine that you get in September, which hopefully will give you a year's uh, immunity, uh, the immunity we have from the vaccine is thought to be six months. And after six months, it's, it wanes. So, but it's, it's interesting that the number of people who have uh, been to the hospital and a number of people who have uh, tested positive for COVID has, has been rising. Uh, and so this is a cause for concern. Uh, so the best advice is to get the uh, bivalent vaccine if you haven't gotten it already. The other advice is continue wearing masks when you're inside. Uh, and there's a tendency to stop doing that uh, because nobody else wears masks. Uh, and so, so, uh, so when you're indoors, uh, it's wise. And, and uh, it's the expectation that as, uh, as the weather changes that the COVID hospitalizations and the infections will increase. Any comment on this by those of you who are out there? Yeah. Um... I had my hand up. Uh, I had three of my friends over the past three weeks to come down with, with COVID. One uh, had been traveling, went up to uh, Detroit on, on the plane. Uh, and two other ones went out to uh, concerts. Uh, one was indoors and one was outdoors. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it hasn't gone anywhere. And I think you know, like somebody, one of my buddies said, uh, it's, it's sort of like the flu. Uh, if you're not careful, you can catch the flu, you know, 
So uh, when you're indoors in close situations, I mean, I, I've even started wearing my mask in the grocery store again. I had stopped that because, you know, you, you get comfortable with the knowledge that you probably won't get sick. But there's more people getting it. I'm going to, when I go indoors, I'm going to wear my mask. Any other comments or thoughts as we, uh, and of course, this is particularly important for the immunosuppressed patient to uh, require vaccinations and uh, uh, some for whom they do not get the immune response from the vaccine as others do. So uh, with that in mind, wearing a mask when you're indoors is something that uh, kind of is a must for, for for transplanted or immune compromised patients or people over uh, 80, 65. This is uh, especially relevant for me, I think, because I, wor I work at a high school. Oh, so yeah. That could be, you know, a, a minefield just going to work. That's right. You're absolutely correct. And I and had so, a booster in uh, January, so I guess I need another one, what, next month, I guess? Uh, six months I is. I had one in January. Oh no, so I'm overdue for. I'm overdue now. Yes, yes, okay. you are. Okay. Yeah. I have a question, Doctor Calendar. Yes. Um, last night I was in a session and they were saying something about uh the the vaccine and that you have had to be uh 65 or older. Is that true? Uh, for 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 the RSV for the vaccine. vaccine. All right, which vaccine? There are a number the number one. RSV vaccine. Yes. Yeah, it is recommended for children or adults over 65. That's for the RSV uh, vaccine, which is uh, uh, a problem for children and adults. Yeah. Now, this is a... Uh, article that uh, a little surprising for some of us because most people know about uh, aerobic exercise, but not too many people know what isometric exercises are. And isometric exercises as a form of exercise that involves a static contraction of a muscle without any visible movement in the angle of the joint. So, uh, we talk a lot about aerobic exercises and weightlifting and so forth and so on, but rarely do we talk about isometric exercises. And it appears that when they analyzed uh, uh, with the large number of people studied if, uh, that you saw above, uh, that the uh, aerobic exercise was effective, but the one that was most effective and lowering blood pressure was isometric. Uh, hand grip, wall squats, leg extension. Uh, so walking is also effective, but uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, isometric, which we have really talked about, is uh, an exercise that also is capable of lowering the blood pressure. So how many of you have used isometric exercise, I think? Many of us have used the aerobic exercise, and many of us have used uh, weightlifting. Any of you out there have used the isometric exercises? 
I do uh, use uh, fairly frequently. Hand uh, squeezing, stretching, right. wall flexion. How, how long do you do it, uh, Lou? I do, uh, it's about uh, 10 minutes. Uh, with hand exercise, it's like 20 contractions, 20, 20 squeezings at a time and do uh, three sets of those in the morning and again at the evening. Stretching about uh, once a day and uh, wall squats once or twice a day at most and I do walking every day. Wow, wonderful. Anybody else do isometric exercises? I don't do it, but my a lot of my friends uh, that play tennis with me, they they uh, they do it every day in the tennis courts. You know, uh, squatting, leg stretching, they do it a lot. And most of my friends, I want to join them in doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments about isometric exercises? Okay, well, it's good to hear that. So Lou is an expert on it, so we'll keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, uh, you know, we talk about the best way to exercise. Uh, I, I think exercise speaks for itself, but sometimes we forget about the importance of weightlifting along with exercising because the aerobic exercises are good. Uh, I think when you have that along with the weightlifting, I think you... Uh, do a lot, and especially uh, uh, the concept that uh, uh, muscle is a good insulin sensitizer. Uh, so, uh, the question is: uh, Should you do one or both, or, or uh, a combination? And most of the evidence suggests that. Uh, the aerobic exercise associated with weightlifting is uh, uh, ideal. Uh, course, Canada, what, what, what does that mean? Uh, insulin sensitivity. What, what does that mean? Okay. Um, uh, the the uh, type 2 diabetes is diabetes in which you have enough insulin, but uh, the insulin uh, that you have is not effective. And mm -hmm. so uh, that means that your body may have antibodies to insulin. And uh, uh, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, so, so, so that uh, uh, if you have, <laughs> if you have, if you have, uh, antibodies to your own insulin, then you would get type two diabetes. Now, the treatment for this is exercise weight loss. And this then uh, allows your body be, to become uh, more sensitive to the use of insulin. Uh, because those people with type two, uh, it's not that they don't have enough insulin, it's that the insulin that they have is not effective. And that is that is why uh, weight loss uh, uh, your poll is not 
accurate because it's, I said yes, but they don't record it. And, but anyway, that, that's the answer to the question about uh, insulin. Did you understand or do I need to make it clearer? I, I, I really didn't yet. I mean, I understand about type one and type two. But well, type, type, yeah, type two diabetes is where you've got enough insulin, but the insulin you have is, is not effective. And uh, uh, by losing weight and exercising, uh, you may decrease uh, whatever is causing uh, your insulin to be ineffective, whether this is because of antibody production against the insulin or, uh, or because your uh, insulin uh, is, uh, the, 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 the thought is that uh, when you have type two diabetes that your insulin is, uh, there are antibodies to your insulin that protect your, in, your uh, insulin from becoming effective. And it is the thought that the exercise and weight loss reduces the, those antibodies. And therefore, your insulin uh, becomes uh, uh, effective again. That's an oversimplification, but that's uh, probably a way of explaining it, that uh, uh, the antibodies that are uh, prohibiting or preventing your insulin from being effective are minimized or eliminated as a consequence of exercise and weight reduction. Does that help at all? Uh, maybe a little bit, but I, you know, I'm just stuck on the, on the word sensitivity. What what do they mean by? Insulin? It means that insulin works. It makes insulin work. Yeah. Okay. Makes okay. your body uh, sensitive uh, to insulin. Anybody want to do a better job of explaining it to uh, uh, John? Uh, when your blood when your uh, blood glucose levels are high. That'll damage parts of the body, such as eyes, nerves, kidneys, blood vessels. Um, and so what insulin does is it lowers your blood sugar levels. And so it, it normalizes you out. Uh, your blood sugar levels go up, you can go into a diabetic coma. And so the more sensitive you are, the, the more your insulin works to, to lower your, your blood sugar levels. That help? Still doesn't help, uh, John. I'm, I'm I'm getting there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, good try, Darrell. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Lou, you got any other way of putting it? Other than to say that, uh, uh, <clears throat> I guess it's like if you have gasoline and a fire. If you have a fire and you add gasoline to it then uh, you're not responding to your insulin. If you add water to the fire, then that, it responds, so the insulin is uh, sensitive. Does that make any difference? <laughs> Still not clear? <laughs> okay, well, we tried, but uh, anyway. Uh, that, it's an important concept, and it's interesting because it's the same concept that uh, they actually use for the treatment of cancer because they have, uh, uh, in your body, you have what they call autoantibodies. And these antibodies protect, uh, prevent your immune system from working. 
and uh, the treatment of cancer, they use uh, an antibodies against these autoantibodies to knock them out so that the immune system can effectively kill the cancer cells. And this kind of is what happens with uh, uh, type two diabetes and that you have uh, antibodies that knock out uh, the body's ability to, to uh, respond to insulin. And uh, uh, when you have uh, exercise and weight loss, this then uh, reduces the amount of these antibodies and allows the insulin to be effective. Anyway, sorry that we can't uh, help you with that, but uh, uh, maybe I can study study on it. Thanks, thanks for, for trying. Doctor Atto has a question. Yeah, it's really, uh, does the insulin work by uh, helping to transfer the glucose, the sugar molecule, into the cell, or does it work with in the mitochondrion of the cell? It does both. It, it, uh, insulin does both because it uh, actually uh, forces uh, it, it. It actually gets your body to, as, as Daryl said, to uh, lower the glucose level. And uh, this then uh, affects electrolytes. But the uh, the manifestation, best manifestation of it is normalizing the blood sugar level. Okay. But so, so when you have type one, your body doesn't produce any insulin at all. That's correct. And in, insulin is necessary to reduce, to normalize the blood glucose. But uh, actually, Dr. Atto's comment just uh, addresses the way in which it acts in the cell uh, to uh, not only to uh, reduce the glucose, but to actually uh, uh, get the movement of sodium and potassium in and out of the cell. Uh, we had, uh, I didn't realize it's 10.30 already, <laughs> but, uh, yes. Hi, can I interrupt for just a minute? My yes. granddaughter Kayla is on and uh, she is headed back to school and she just wanted to uh, pop in. I think some of the old members of the transplant group will remember her. And uh, she just wanted to say hello to you, Dr. Callender and the group. And I wanted her to meet Dr. Ivy because she's going back. This is her second year at Penn State. Ah, <clears throat> oh, the that's very good. The ultimate <laughs> alumni. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? All right. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you all. Yeah. 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 Do you see any? Do they have a statue of Lewis Ivy at Penn State? <laughs> no, yet, but I'll be petitioning to get one put up. <laughs> I had a uh, painting that I did up there in Old Maine some years ago, but you know that was a long time ago. Oh, okay, I've actually never even been in the building. I don't know if it's still open, like to students and stuff. But I go on the lawn a lot, and I'll do like my studying there and stuff. But yeah, what are you majoring uh, in? Data science. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's where the action is. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Dr. Clarence Lang, he's the Clarence? dean of the African-American studies. I don't think so. I don't think I met him before. Okay, well, uh, let him know that I talked to you and uh, he'll okay. do what he can to guide you in the right direction. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll definitely look out for him. What, was, <laughs> what did you say his name was? Clarence Lang, L-A-N-G. Okay, thank you. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Welcome I back know. to the group. <laughs> thank yeah. you. It's yeah. good to be back. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks, uh, uh, Janice. That's oh yeah, we're well. very proud of uh, Kayla, and of course, uh, see she sees you, Doctor Calendar, and the group as her support team. And uh, you know, she was coming on a regular basis when we had yes. virtual. How could I forget? Believe it or not, my granddaughter and grandson loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, have a great year. Kayla. Thank you. Thank and you. say hello to your brother, yeah. Jim. For I me. will. I will. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, looks like this is the last slide, though. But uh, physical activity uh, is an effective intervention for mental health conditions. And uh, put this in there just to remind something that has uh, been talked about for a little while, and that is anxiety, depression, and psychological distress. Mm -hmm is uh, treated as well by exercise. So it's something that we uh, need to do. And uh, it's interesting, 128,000 participants have uh, uh, been involved in this study that have demonstrated that uh, the cognitive aspects of mental health are improved by exercising. And since we all exercise, I think it's good for us as we age to uh, recognize that uh, uh, exercises for all, the young and the old. It, it's just that as you age, it becomes much more important in order to survive. And since we have so much anxiety and depression, psychological distress, and since uh, when you're black, you're stressed even more than ever, exercise becomes even more important. Okay, I guess that's this will be the last slide and uh, uh, this is my uh, hand exerciser. Oh, isometric. ah, okay. We isometric exercise. Yeah, okay. you, just, uh, okay. you just squeeze it. Great demonstration. And you mm -hmm. do about how many of those? 20 at a time and about three sessions of those. Mm -hmm. Wow, great, great, great. Can I see it again, Dr. Ivory, please? I'm not seeing it. Can't see it? No. Hello? Can you I, see it? I'm Anybody still else? not seeing it. Oh, okay. I see it now. That's Good. interesting. Mm -hmm. It's adjustable. Tension is adjustable. Show, show her how you do it, uh, Lou. I'm not seeing it. You still can't see it, huh? Hmm. I don't know. If you could hold it a little bit higher, like where your face is. 
I you see still it. can't see it? Huh? I see it. Okay. All right. Looks easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, That's good well, for your bone structure, is it? Muscles and bones. Muscle primarily, and it keeps the joints active. Dr. Ivy, would you say that's your main squeeze? <laughs> uh, leave it to Daryl. <laughs> Daryl yeah. is a bright fellow. So, so trained. Oh, boy. Hey, hey look at Buchanan. Buchanan has another uh, isometric exercise. See that, tennis? Joyce? You see? Let me get Buchanan up. You see him? With his yes, I see him. Yeah, with his ball. That's oh, isometric no. exercise as well. <laughs> well, I might as well show mine. Uh oh. Okay, <laughs> let's see yours, John. Oh Lord. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> oh, that's your balls, huh? Okay. Right. Balls. You roll them around <laughs> with your hands. Yeah. Uh, I don't like my I don't like my balls squeezed. <laughs> no, you don't squeeze them. You just roll them around in a circle in your hand. I but see. They're okay. called Chinese balls. Okay. All <laughs> right. Well, uh, thank you very much, everyone, and uh, have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week. Have a good Penn State. Thank you, Blue Bye. 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 Uh, okay. Bye, have a great week. We here. Oh, yeah. Dennis, how's your how's how selling going? <clears throat> You're muted, Janet. Have a showing today and another one on Saturday. They're looking, but hasn't really hit yet. But I'm hopeful it'll happen uh, very soon. Hopefully. Okay. Yeah. And John Reynolds, thanks again for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's good to see you. Actually, one of my one of my sisters said she knows you, so I guess I have to act like I have some sense now, huh? What's her name? Leslie Williams. You oh. worked with her daughter Lauren. Yeah. Okay. She said you helped Lauren out at one time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Vicky's sister. Vicky's sister. Well, that's wonderful. Well, tell her hi for me. Okay. <laughs> I would do that. I would do that because she sent me a text last week after she saw the video. Oh, okay, wonderful. Yeah. Mark, it's good to see you again. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right. Have a good weekend. Bye. Okay. Thanks. See you. Yeah. Bye for now. Bye. Have a good <laughs>